Hello, Dr. Nisha. Welcome to my podcast, Ayurvedic Healing and Beyond. And uh, to all the listeners listening and today's guest that I'm going to interview, it's quite interesting how I found her. I was going through a tag in Instagram called Functional Medicine. And functional medicine is one of the topics that always interests me because being an Ayurvedic doctor, uh, which I always used to talk in my previous episodes and my lectures, being an Ayurvedic doctor today is being a doctor for the leftover patients, you know, the patients who couldn't be treated by the modern medicine, where they say you have incurable diseases, you have to live with it, uh, you have to endure that. So they come to an alternative therapies like Ayurvedic medicine. And in my learning process, in my uh, consultations with all the patients, I came to know about something called as functional medicine, and that always fascinated me. So while going through this Instagram post, I saw a post about how using some of trifala decoctions and herbal decoctions can help women get rid of some of the candida and yeast infection and also in some aspects of urinary tract infection. And then I went into her page and I saw that she's an internal medicine MD. So that really fascinated me because being a modern doctor and getting interested in functional medicine and Ayurveda needs a huge respect. And she's one of the best guests I could have in my podcast where I interview a lot of healers, uh, gifted healers, gifted doctors who is more into holistic healing and who does a lot of treating people who are called as incurable or so-called incurable according to the modern medicine. So welcome, Dr. Nisha. Thank you so much for taking Thank the time to be a part of my podcast. Hi, everyone. Thank you. And recently I saw a post in your Instagram about how to prepare for your quarantine with veggies and things that you bought from the, farm, uh, from the supermarket. Yeah. So how is the quarantine life going? And I think you are doing more of telemedicine. Yeah, so it's it's actually been a lot busier than I expected. Um, it seems like everybody else is on home vacation, and um, for the most part, and it, for doctors, it's a lot busier, and um, and it makes sense that it is. And I'm happy to serve in that way. Mm -hmm. So it's really nice to be able to dip in and provide the traditional uh, acute Western care that is necessary during a national crisis or a, a world crisis, okay. um, but then also have um, the ability to move into holistic integrative visits um, when the timing is appropriate. So being a doctor, you know, internal medicine MD and that too in the United States, I'm sure you have enough patients to deal with this background itself. And what prompted you to come into a science called Ayurveda? What was your aha moment? Yes, this is what I want to integrate into my practice. Right, yeah. It wasn't a matter of volume and having a job. It was more about um, being passionate about what I do. Mm -hmm. So um, I think going all throughout med medical school, when we had to choose a residency, I never, everybody was like, just, just do what you want to do. Just follow your passion. Do you want to be a cardiologist? Do you want to be a gastroenterologist? And nothing was um, catching my attention or really pulling my heart. So um, I just thought for a while that there must be a vacancy there. And I, you know, maybe didn't have a passion. And um, it wasn't until I went to Ayurvedic school um, after working for five years in internal medicine that I finally had the taste of what a passion, what passion is like to feel that, um, that, Oh, this is the thing that I want to learn about study and teach. And, uh, and so for me, it was partly about finding passion in my work mm -hmm. that, you know, led me to this career right now where I integrate all of the modalities that I find to be helpful in healing but also um, a matter of wanting to serve in a bigger way. So my experience of uh, traditional medicine is that it's really amazing. When you say really traditional medicine, you mean the modern medicine? Uh, yes. yes. It's so funny. There's so many different words for it. <laughs> so some people call it all conventional medicine versus homeopathic. Yeah, exactly. 
Western versus Eastern. And then yeah, I think the one that I'm most familiar with is traditional versus integrative holistic. Yeah. So, um, so yes, uh, maybe call it Western medicine then. So, so yeah, my experience of Western medicine, and it was that it was amazing for treating acute conditions, you know, so if Infectious you're having diseases. a heart attack, you yeah. weren't, huh? Infectious diseases, what? emergency care. Right. If you're having a, an abscess or, you know, a meningitis or an, an MI, an acute heart attack, you want to be in a hospital and receive either medical or surgical care that's appropriate and and for that western medicine is amazing and it does it's a great job. right and we've made so many advances and i think um being in internal medicine where i wasn't in those acute situations i did work in the er and in um you mean in ER the emergency for, emergency place right I did work in those settings for the first three years, um, but then transitioning to more of an outpatient practice, uh, I realized that all of the chronic medical conditions, so high, high blood pressure and cholesterol and just feeling tired and um, not sleeping well, these were the things that people were suffering with stress that were coming to the clinics and there wasn't much to offer them. There were, you know, certain medications, but the doctors were doing the best they had with the tools that they had, but they just didn't have the tools to help in these um, chronic, more preventative arena, mm -hmm. in the chronic, more preventative arena. And so that was what began to interest me because, you know, I think I've always been interested in how do I heal and heal my own body and protect, uh, prevent disease in my body and those of um, people that I care about around me and then being able to translate that into my patient practice and do that for others too was uh, what drew me along this path. Well, that's a fantastic story and I really like the way you explain about the acute conditions and the chronic diseases where the allopathic medicine is helpless. So when you say, you know, you being a MD in internal medicine, at the same time, you practice Ayurveda. So to what extent, you know, allopathic or Western medicine has an approach to immune system and Ayurveda also has an approach to immune system or mm -hmm. immunity. So where do you think we need to approach Ayurveda for immunity and allopathic system for immunity in your experience? Right, so... Because today we talk I about vaccination, flu shots, and uh, many anti-vaccine mm -hmm. therapy, I mean, vaccine, vaccine to antiviral therapy. So where do, how long, how much can we trust our immune system? Well, I actually am not a huge supporter of vaccines. Mm -hmm. um, I think, especially for things that are current right now with the flu and COVID, there, there isn't a vaccine yet for COVID, but um, viruses, as, as you probably know too, they mutate so fast that by the time a vaccine is available for it, it's actually not even effective on the current strain. Mm -hmm. And so I don't, I'm not, a, I'm not a big supporter of vaccines for things that are seasonal, like mm -hmm. the flu. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the vaccine schedule needs to be interrupted a bit more. And um, in the U.S., oftentimes small kids are given a you know a large number of vaccines, and that's a bit too much for their immune system. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of how to approach immunity, well, my understanding of immunity from Ayurveda is that it's it's so much more than what you're doing on a cellular level that you can approach it through these global pieces of your lifestyle. So um, how do you rest? Are you getting enough deep restorative sleep? How much ama is already burdening the body? How much toxicity is already in the body that the, it, that it does your agni and digestive fire have to deal with in order to then have another invader and will that be its tipping point? So from Ayurveda, it's more about supporting your 
lifestyle, using your lifestyle as a support for your entire system to function well. Um, and the way I really interpret it is a combination of um, looking at gut health mm -hmm. through functional medicine. We know that 80% of the immune system, the GALT, is in the intestinal tract. And it's the foods that you're eating. It's the heavy metal burden that you've been exposed to. It's the combination of organisms in your gut, the um, microbiome and the level of dysbiosis that all influence what your immune system is seeing. And so if you have these insults in the gut, then it leads to leaky gut, which basically is a compromised membrane or barrier between your external environment and your immunity, your immune system. And then your immune system can get over aggravated or there can be um, release of what we call LPS, which is bacterial um, protein into your bloodstream, which then flares your immune system. Mm -hmm. So if you're already hyper responsive through this gut connection, then any pathogen that you're exposed to, you're gonna mount a bigger response. Mm -hmm. And your immune system will also be tied up in fighting gluten or dairy that it won't maybe have the resources to redirect it to say a virus. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes this, uh, this very synchronous idea of how what's going on in your gut is influencing your whole body. And I think that's, um, and your immunity. And I think that's what's um, really intriguing about functional medicine and Ayurveda is that they both support this philosophy of, of what, what you eat and how you digest is affecting every other system, exactly. including your immune system. So in one of your, articles and also your posts you're talking about how gut health can affect a woman's uh, menstrual cycle and also to a great extent the vaginal health so that is one thing that i want to emphasize on this podcast to all the listeners so to i get as a ayurvedic doctor i get many patients coming and say that you know i had this urinary tract infection or candida and i was taking uh, antibiotics for a long time but it still keeps coming back so i don't know what to do so in such conditions, being a functional medicine expert and also with someone who is integrating Ayurveda and who also has the right to prescribe antibiotics, how do you take this? And to, when do you recommend them? Only now you need to take antibiotics, but that's a last resource. In what conditions would you recommend them that? And how would you give them the tips and the changes in their lifestyle with the diet and the habits? In your experience. Right. So... Yeah, so um, I, I, I believe, and it's kind of a known fact, <laughs> that, um, that what's happening on the gut mucosal layer is happening on every mucosal la layer. And I don't know, and there, I don't know exactly how, and we don't know how this crosstalk occurs, but the mucous membranes are connecting and they're communicating. So what's happening on the internal lining of the small intestine is also governing what's happening in on the vaginal mucosa, on the vaginal lining, in the nasal passages. And so people who have chronic sinus infections or chronic vaginal health infections or urethral, so urinary tract infections, they usually always have something else going on on a, another mucosal layer, which um, the gut being the biggest lining is directing most of it. So women with chronic candidal infections um, through the vaginal candidiasis or yeast infections are having, are having um, oftentimes yeast that's showing up in their intestinal lining too. Mm -hmm. And this doesn't, um, this doesn't, this isn't measured in traditional Western medicine. There are functional medicine tests where patients can send in an analysis um, over three days of collection. And in that sample, they're able to see this, this overgrowth of yeast. And um, there, it's pretty profound. You can look at what is the probiotic makeup? Are there 
other dysbiotic organisms, other bacteria that are overgrown. And it actually even shows sensitivities. So what are the herbal compounds? What are the pharmaceutical compounds that are going to be um, the, the, the pathogen or the yeast is going to be the most sensitive to? Mm-hmm. And so um, that is a good way to direct uh, direct treatment. Mm-hmm. Personally, I'm able to tell a lot through just talking to the patient and getting a good history um, of their prior antibiotic use, birth control pill use. All of these things are affecting the microbiome. Were they breastfed or not? These things affect, or were they uh, a vaginal delivery versus a C-section? All of these things influence the gut flora. And if someone's had several of those insults over the years, which most people have, then they have a propensity to overgrowth of certain pathogens. And um, if a woman's had recurrent yeast infections or recurrent UTIs, it is a key that there is something um, disrupted in the gut microbiome. And so my approach is to usually take that patient through a gut cleanse mm-hmm. where I use some herbal compounds and probiotics to rebalance like the gut flora. Would you recommend a purge? Well, what I've found is it's really nice to do a two-step process. So mm-hmm. I'll take them through a process where we bring the levels down. And so my understanding of these organisms is that they are ama in and of itself. The probiotics I like to think about as Agni mm-hmm. and because they help metabolize um, various uh, nutrients, but also create their own uh, compounds that are really helpful for the nervous system and and the immune system and support the gut lining. So the probiotics are like your Agni army, Mm -hmm. and the dysbiotic organisms are like your AMA, and they actually thrive in in conditions with more AMA as well. So I also think of AMA as the biofilms where these bugs like to hide out. And so I start to work with a patient to do some basic Ayurvedic practices to reduce AMA. So how are they eating? What are they eating? When are what they eating? All the basic. What would you say to eliminate? What? what would be the first things you would recommend them to eliminate? Well, um, in terms of uh, specifically for candidal infections? Mm-hmm. Yes, candidal infections. So I, I see that as... A, is kapha and so any so the kapha pacifying diet is really helpful so when i think about kapha i think primarily of dairy sugar and wheat so these are the most kaphagenic compounds but then we can get more specific too with a you know going through all of the different dietary pieces but mm-hmm. yeah if they follow so a these kapha, are the three uh, main reduce- things you recommend first right Yes, yeah, so if they follow a kapha reducing diet, um, you know, dairy, sugar, you know, most grains, um, there are definitely some grains, but a lot of grains. Um, and I think most people are following a very kapha promoting diet, just mm-hmm. your standard American diet is very much so that way. So, um, so t- eliminating those, incorporating a lot more vegetables, um, typically moving towards six to nine cups of vegetables a day. And that's not raw, that's cooked. So if it's, you know, three cups of kale raw, then that's Mm -hmm. one cup cooked in this formula. So essentially crowding out a plate and of the more cathogenic compounds and really adding in more of these non-starchy vegetables and proteins, um, can really be helpful with specifically for candidal infections and um, other kapha diseases as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, when I'm looking at the, the gut, I'm tr- I follow this two-phase approach where I begin to start to reduce AMA in the patient's body um, and then incorporate a gut cleanse where I'm adding in some herbal compounds that um, are leveling for the gut flora. So they bring numbers of yeast down, they bring um, other pathogens down, adding in a probiotic to repopulate. Uh, 
and then supporting the good bacteria by feeding them what they thrive on. Mm -hmm. So the dysbiotic organisms thrive on junk food. They thrive on processed food. So um, they like to eat the simple sugars and um, that's what makes them grow. And so if you give them fiber and you give them celery and things that you know they don't like then they don't grow and so stop feeding the in monster. essence it's like a like we say stop what? feeding the monster stop feeding the monster right. exactly yeah so it's like it's like a weed seed and feed approach where you're removing and you're seeding with the probiotics and then you're feeding um, what you want to thrive and it's no coincidence that what makes you healthy um, the good bacteria like to eat things that are we know are healthy, you know. And so, if you could have something in its whole form, um, like a vegetable versus a pasta that has been processed, you're probably going to get a lot more nutrition out of the vegetable, but also um, it's going to be more supportive because it won't be broken down to a simple sugar as easily that will feed those dysbiotic organisms. So I usually follow that approach. And then if there's, um, that usually does the trick. Mm -hmm. And then the, in order to, if they're really interested in further cleansing, then doing kind of like a mini panchakarma mm -hmm. um, with me or sending them to a practitioner that could do a more in-depth panchakarma would be great. And what supplements would you recommend them? Because I see that you promote vitamin C and supplements which are also high in zinc, magnesium. So what would you recommend in such conditions? So what supplements are great for yes. um, specifically candida. for candidal infections? Yes. yes. Well, um, the one that I use for the cleanse has a variety of different herbs in it, like mm -hmm. black walnut and oregano. And so it's a combination pill. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of supplements in general to support the body, usually I will um, hold off on doing any B complex or B vitamin mm -hmm. supplements during a, a condition like that or a cleanse because those um, overgrown organisms, the dysbiotic growth also feeds off of the B vitamins. Like they, mm -hmm. they, they use that for their own reproduction. So I'll cleanse those levels before I add in a B complex or mm -hmm. a B vitamin. Um, many vegetarian patients or vegan patients are mm -hmm. deficient in bees. Mm -hmm. So that is a really helpful one to add in later. Um, in general, to support a really, um, a really nourished lifestyle, I will typically use a few things um, in most people. And so most people are not getting enough magnesium in their diet because um, even if they're eating a whole foods, nine cups of vegetables per day diet, the soil is depleted of magnesium oh, yeah. from over farming practices. Mm -hmm. So adding in magnesium is really helpful. And it's pretty profound the effect that it has on the nervous system mm -hmm. uh, when you just add in some more magnesium. The trouble with a lot of magnesium that's available is that it is um, more of a laxative than it is um, a nervous system uh, relaxer. And that's because of the form it's in. So if it's something like a magnesium oxide or um, carbonate, then that's gonna have more of a bowel laxative effect, mm -hmm. which could be great for some people because not moving their bowels is a big problem for mm -hmm. a lot of people. Oh, yeah, that's probably the primary issue. Yeah, that's probably and, and, the primary issue in so many people. But if they, if, uh, you said about. Oh uh, yeah, but if they do have good bowel function. Yes, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> oh no, I was just going to say that if they do have good bowel function, then having magnesium in a different form that we call chelated or. Um, chelated to um, a malate or a glycinate, these are better absorbed, and so. Um, taking those at bedtime can help a patient have a more restorative sleep, a deeper sleep. Many patients report sleeping like a baby, like just like they really feel like um, they've never slept so well since they were children. Mm -hmm. And so getting that 
anchored into their lifestyle um, where they have deep restorative sleep is profound as well for the functioning of everything, the nervous system, the circadian rhythm, hormonal function, um, and, and digestive health as well because we function on a circadian clock. And so, um, so that's one of my keys. A lot of patients I see are, you know, through testing, even if they are supplementing or getting enough sunshine, they are deficient in vitamin, vitamin D. D yes. yes, that's true. Yeah. Because I see in Kerala, we have such a great sunshine and still we see a lot of people with vitamin D deficiency. Yeah, it's it's kind of impressive. I mean, I think how much melanin you have in your skin does influence um, your absorption to some degree. But um, I I know that it's uh, processed in the liver and then converted to vitamin D three in the kidney. Um, so if there's any stagnation in the liver or disease, that could impact the ability to actually make vitamin D3. So supplementing it um, is really helpful in a lot of patients because it's a potent anti-inflammatory, it supports hormone health, and um, also great for the immune system. So um, so typically, you know, I'll dose that at about 5,000 IUs is kind of a basic level mm -hmm. for um, a lot of people. And it's a supplement that they stay on um, it, periodically throughout their life mm -hmm. um, if needed. And so um, that's another favorite. And um, I do really like Trifola. I think, you know, like we talked about, most people aren't moving their bowels enough and um, eliminating enough. And we create AMA daily unless you're living <laughs> the life of a um, someone who doesn't have any stress and they chew all their food and eat really healthy and maybe then they still don't have AMA. I don't know. Um, so so um, it, just in its ability to help promote the elimination of AMA, I do like to use that um, periodically with patients. And um, yeah, so those I would say are my three favorites. And, and then doing a specifically a gut cleanse for patients who have candidal issues. And uh, I remember in your um, answers you were talking about uh, heavy metal toxicity mm -hmm. if that could also lead to candida and this so I, I see that many people who eat a lot of uh, seafood or fish they tend to get a lot of uh, heavy metal especially mercury or arsenic or even to a great extent lead and cadmium so in your experience mm -hmm. which heavy metal do you see and would you recommend them to stop taking fish or seafood and how do you see this as relating to that? Right. It usually, um, candida usually correlates with mercury mm -hmm. toxicity. Mm -hmm. I mean, it can with other metals as well. So I, I think there are certain fish that are higher in mercury. They test these and, um, and in those cases, you know, maybe avoiding certain types of fish, like things like sardines, um, don't have as much mercury. Um, and um, it, they can't, you can look up, you know, which fish are higher in mercury and avoid those ones if there is a, a big issue with candida. But by, by that point, um, there needs to be more in the way of elimination of the body burden to begin with, rather than just stopping the ingestion. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a lot of different um, schools of thought around how to eliminate heavy metals. If you know, one of my favorite ways to do it naturally through food is uh, a heavy metal detox smoothie mm -hmm. and there's different recipes and formulas around but um, we know that cilantro and spirulina are great heavy and even um, celery uh, juice what celery juice celery juice I haven't yeah I haven't seen celery juice do that as much have you seen um, information on celery juice doing that no I've heard people talk about that when they tried it, it showed them good results but however in my practice i do panchakarma we do a lot of bloodletting and purging that helps to get rid of the heavy metals Im immediately okay and so the purging um through the 
intestines. Uh, they're like more of a rich castor oil, or we give them some herbs that does a purgation in the gut. You know, it's like trifala is a yeah. mild laxative, but we give a strong purgative. Yeah. Like a crocodile. Yeah, I mean, I think Ayurveda has. Crocton tiglion is one yeah, of the herbs think, that we use. Okay. I think Ayurveda definitely has some amazing solutions for heavy metals that we can't even fathom in mm -hmm. the science that we have available right now. Um, so if, if I were to do it through food, um, this detox shake um, that I like has cilantro and spirulina, wild blueberries, um, barley wheat grass, um, and they all sort of work to in succession to sweep out the heavy metals. So, um, so doing it through the, through food sometimes, um, like just being really good about adding cilantro, cooked cilantro to every to every dish, and um, and even using essential oils can be helpful, like putting them in a capsule. Mm -hmm. So cilantro or coriander. Um, and that's if you're doing that outside of a panchakarma and really just trying to minimize levels. But um, my understanding of doing it through panchakarma is that you're able to get a lot more out and a huge variety of things out because through the internal oleation with the ghee and external oleation, you're really moving everything that's lodged in the deeper, deeper tissues into the gut to be released. Exactly. I mean, we have and seen so, people. So the leeches. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, so, so the leeches um, preferentially are sucking contaminated blood, and so they're taking the heavy metals that are circulating in the bloodstream. Is that how it works? Yes, exactly. Uh, we also use the common bloodletting, you know, just getting rid of 200 ml of blood. If they don't have any low blood pressure or anemia in that condition, we do a 200 ml to 300 ml bloodletting. That also helps to get rid of the heavy metal poison. Mm. And that's after doing some internal oleation with ghee? Uh, like internal oleation in and uh, a purge. When we do a strong purge after we do the oleation therapy. Okay. So you do the... So what is the steps that you take? You do um, bloodletting, internal... Um, purgation and then you do the oleation no first we start with the oleation then we do the purgation and then we do the bloodletting okay so that, that, that makes sequence. sense yeah we follow that sequence okay at the same time first we do a blood test to see understand to what intensity is the mercurial poisoning so if it is too much then the intensity of the oleation and purgation is on another level and uh, and then we do the bloodletting and we have documented so mm -hmm. many cases where the mercurial poisoning was more than 10 parts per million and after the two weeks of panchakarma it came down less than four which is the permissible limit mm. and you're measuring that in the blood yeah we do the heavy metal blood test i mean mm -hmm. we can get it tested okay so some of the thought around the blood test is that it's only measuring acute exposure. Mm -hmm. So it's what's um, in circulation. However, heavy metals are stored in the bones and in they, yeah, that's why they show part. up in exactly. hair testing. And exactly. so it's a, it's a superficial test. You, so know, you get it in the blood. It's still great to have some value assigned to it and then to be able to see it come down. And I think that's where, when I think about the oleation, I really think about it taking what's lodged in the deeper tissues, in the astidatu, and then like, mm -hmm. and, and the connective tissue around it and bringing that into circulation. And so um, I, I think in essence, you get a much deeper heavy metal purge through the Ayurvedic process of okay. oleation and as you, illustrated than if you were to just um just uh you know take what's in the blood and then you know what i mean exactly you're not just treating the superficial periphery but we're going to the roots and getting it out yeah and i've i've definitely worked with some patients that went through a deeper panchakarma and were able to get things like 
um, gadolinium, which is the heavy metal from MRI scanning, mm -hmm. what, what they use for contrast, uh, had had issues with that lodging into uh, different parts of the body creating hip pain and things like that and then they get the panchakarma it removes that and then they're able to you know just have a much better quality of life and um, not have the the same ailment so um, so yeah I'm a big fan of of panchakarma <laughs> okay. I do it twice a year so <laughs> I understand what what difference it makes <laughs> Oh wow! You do it on your you you do it for yourself twice yes. a year. Yes. And, and uh, we are running out of time right now, so I'll have the last few questions. Oh, okay. What's your take on pill? I see that many pills? women take pill. Yeah, like contraceptive pills. Oh, the birth control pill. The birth control pill. Okay. Yes. In few yeah, seconds, so, would you um, recommend women who are taking that? What would be your advice for them? I would say no. <laughs> I usually don't recommend the birth control pill. Um, it's there's many other ways to achieve contraception, which is its primary indication mm -hmm. um, that don't trick the body into thinking that it's pregnant for however many years, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it disrupts the birth control pill disrupts your microbiome as i mentioned it's one of the causes if you had been on it for over three years uh, it does change your flora to the point where you can't even trust your gut mm -hmm. and um there's information that um we choose hormonally our our partners and mm -hmm. when you're on a birth control pill because that pathway is disrupted you actually may find someone attractive that you didn't find attractive hormonally mm -hmm. and when you get off the pill then you're not attracted to them anymore because now your gut floor has changed and, and it doesn't match your partners what Oh my God. Okay. This is something new, yes. interesting take. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think there's actually, a, it's coming from a book, which is a compilation of a lot of research. And it's the, I think the book is called the pill. Yeah. yeah. The pill, so yeah. check, check that out. But you know, just in general, um, there's the, you know, rhythm method. There's so many different ways to time your ovulatory cycle if you have regular cycles. And if you don't have regular menstrual cycles, then it's an opportunity to dig deeper and find out why you don't, because there is usually a, a deep root, root cause behind it that you're not addressing when you just take a birth control pill. And, um, and so in traditional Western medicine, that is a, a practice to use a birth control pill to simulate a regular menstrual cycle when there isn't regularity. And uh, that if it's done without looking for the deeper root cause, then you're missing out on what, what the other issues are. And I think Ayurveda has a lot of great answers in order to reset the menstrual cycle through um, through diet and lifestyle. And um, there's also um, the, the perspective of looking at your reproductive tissue as the last tissue to be nourished, that there can be blocks in the nervous system, which comes right before reproductive tissue and nourishment, or rasadhatu in the lymph work. So all of these things could have blocks or issues, and if you're not addressing it, then you've got this deep set problem that's showing up, and you haven't looked at the other six layers of tissue preceding it that could have an issue in them. Mm -hmm. So I'm a big fan of, um, using to one achieve a regular menstrual cycle through all the tools that we have available to us and two um, to once you do have a regular menstrual cycle to use that to track when you're ovulating so that you don't have to take birth control pills and mess up your gut flora your um, fertility sex drive and your ability to find the right person attractive <laughs> and you want your fertility your ability to have babies yes fertility as well yeah you know you got you got to use the system so that it doesn't um 
you don't lose it. You know, if you, exactly. if you mask things for such a period of time, then it's, uh, you can't just, you know, expect it to turn on whenever you want. That's not how the body works. You have to, you know, treat it well. And, um, so yeah, that's my perspective on birth control pills. I guess I could talk about that for a long time. Sorry, that was not a short answer. Maybe we do another session for that. There is one book that I read. <laughs> uh, there's one book I read along with that book that you told, The Pill. Uh, there's another book, Taking Charge of Your Fertility, where I read something about the rhythm method that you said about and also how important regulating your menstrual cycle is. Right. And I, I look at it as your monthly report card. Hmm. So it's how, how you did all month. How were you emotionally? How was your routine? How was your lifestyle? How did you eat? Um, you know, what, what things did you create for yourself in that month? And then it shows up with how you eliminate that month. And I think, um, something that we don't think about in traditional West, Western medicine, which is really important, is that it is an elimination cycle. It is an opportunity to detox and it is an opportunity to also connect with your intuition, to go inward and to really use um, the ability that is more pronounced at that time to connect with your highest self, with your intuition, which will guide how you behave the whole rest of the month and will influence your interactions with others and your relationships and what you create each month. Well, that's such a fantastic. I wish all the uh, girls in the school get to know this information at the, at a very young age rather than going to the gynecologist. I know, it would be great. <laughs> I mean, I feel like we should go to schools and educate, you know, because it, I don't, I don't know that it is in the, the education. Uh, me, since I practice Panchakarma and Ayurveda, we get a lot of uh, patient, couples coming for fertility issues. And when I ask them, uh, how was it, when I take their medical history, they would say been, they've been taking the contraceptive pills since 14 or even 16, and they've been taking it for two decades, and now they want to have a baby, and the body is not listening to it. Mm. And that's another yeah. That so what is, how do you approach that? What do you do? The first thing is we get back their menstrual cycle because once the mm -hmm. menstrual cycle is ready and then the fertility is back. So that's how we look at it. So we cleanse them, we put them on the better sleeve, we make them eat the right thing and we make them go through a very intense cleanse with uh, not just purge, even colonics, even vastis, kashaya vastis, matra vastis. And in some cases, we also do the vomiting if they have too much of mucus stored in their body. And after that, the, the cycle mm. just starts and things are fine. In some of my previous episodes, I was talking about that, how we regained a woman who never had menstruation for almost two decades. And then it came back after doing an intense panchakarma. From that. And what books yeah, that's, changed? That's a great point. Oh, yeah. And the, my next question, what books shaped you? If you recommend three books, you would recommend a woman to read on feminine health and menstrual cycle. What three books would you recommend? Um, let's see. I don't, I don't know that I have like books specific for female health, um, but I would say just in a global way, one of the most transformative books I ever read was um, Journey of Souls. Have hmm. you heard of that one by Michael Newton? No, I have to read that. Then. Journey of Souls. Yeah, it's um, it's a a man who hypnotizes patients to their life in between lives, mm -hmm. so it's not a past life regression, and um, it's I think if one of our biggest problems in health is that we think too small. We think about a disease, we think about its characteristics, we think about how to treat it, but there's usually these other more global layers that we're not addressing, which are the mental, emotional, spiritual aspect of living mm -hmm. and, um, and the purpose of life and the purpose of ups and downs and what they mean and certain connections and so the reading this book 
several years ago helped me have a framework to approach that part of life. And I feel like it could be incredibly healing for someone if they can tap into the spiritual aspect of their life mm -hmm. and everything that's happened to this point, which will influence um, how they even approach their health and they approach their disease. So, um, journey so yeah, that's, of souls. Yeah, journey of souls. It's it's pretty amazing. Let me know what you think. <laughs> oh, yeah. sure, sure. And what tips would you give as a habit that could, uh, you know, if there is a habit that you follow that helped you that you would recommend your 20-year-old self? Oh, well, I was doing this at 20, so, um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, I've been sort of following an Ayurvedic routine lifestyle since I was about 15, um, but um, let's see, I, I would think that one of the biggest, easiest things that people can do for their health is to eliminate all cold beverages <laughs> from their diet especially um, in America, and yeah. to just have what you know, especially in the united states whenever i go to a restaurant they would give me a glass with full of ice cubes with water anything is right full of ice cubes. Yeah. yeah we we used to joke among my ayurvedic friends when we were um together that that's like you know, just like, are you, are you kidding? Are you really going to just give me a big glass of ama, you know, ama fuel here and just put out the agni? And so it's, um, I mean, I think in certain really hot climates, people do have cold um, drinks, but if they are going to do that to then just have it completely away from food. Um, but I think that's one of the biggest things to start the morning with some hydration. Mm -hmm. um, that's actually a hydrating liquid versus a dehydrating liquid, like a coffee or a tea is diuretic. And um, the, the thing that you need most in the morning is hydration so that you can detox anything that's come to the gut to be eliminated. Um, so I think the real basics can go so far with so many people, which is um, adequate, warm, liquid hydration in the morning and throughout the day. Just and making water. sure that there's huh? This hot water is also a basic thing. A warm water. Yeah, I mean, I, I call it like, I say hot, but I mean sipping temperature, yeah. you know, where you actually to be specific, it's like right around 135 degrees. <laughs> I used to have a kettle that would allow me to adjust it um, by, by temperature. So I would be like, oh, that's the perfect tea during, that's the perfect warm water temperature for the morning. So, um, so yeah, um, warm water. And then just to make sure that they're eliminating, there's so many people that, don't know that it's abnormal to not have a bowel movement every day and um you know even a couple times a day and so for them they say like oh it's just been like that my whole life i've only go once or twice a week and in essence um we know in ayurveda and functional medicine that that's like a big no-no all the all the material that's in the gut if you're eating you need to be eliminating and most people eliminate even when they're not eating so that <laughs> goes to show that you know you it's a really imperative function it's one of your three major pathways of elimination and you need to do it daily so i would say um even though it's nothing profound, those things can go a long way and have a huge ripple effect. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think just to get a little bit more nuclear, I think um, having patients follow some degree of food combining is, mm -hmm. is really helpful. And, um, you know, what's your take on food combining? Do you, do you get really specific about not mixing any proteins together? So say, so how do you approach that? In my experience, I tell them not to mix um, lactose with a lot of fruits, like, for example, milk and fruits. This is something I tell them not to mix. And of course, cheese and meat. Right. I tell them not to mix these two things. I, the, the explanation I tell them, if you are having cheese and meat together, it's like putting your white shirt 
and your freshly dyed black shirt together in the washing machine. So the way oh, we are going to digest okay. that, it's going to take a longer time to digest that. So this is what I tell them to separate these two things. What about cheese and beans? Well, proteins and milk products, they both are not good friends together at the same time. Yeah, I mean, just to, it just comes to mind, like when you go out to eat in most restaurants in mm -hmm. America, especially in Texas, there's Tex-Mex, there's beans, cheese, and meat and eggs or something all on one plate, you know, and so, I think it's really helpful for um, for anyone listening to be like, okay, this is the practical aspect. Like I shouldn't order all of that together. Like <laughs> even though it's on the menu that way and, you know, we may have grown accustomed to that tasting really good, you know? Um, so, or even at buffets, right? You go to a buffet and you think, oh, wow, there's all this amazing food. I want to eat everything. Exactly. But usually, inevitably, there's watermelon, there's juice, you know, all of that is with all the buffet food. So, so yeah, I think um, for me, I'll, I'll uh, be really, you know, specific about keeping fruit separate than the the meal and keeping that away by at least an hour before and two hours after. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I usually share with clients. And um, I, I usually think that fruit and nuts work together. How, what's your take on that? I mean, if it is heavy, I recommend to separate the nuts. If they are heavy mm -hmm. kind of nuts, I recommend them to separate and have it in empty stomach. But usually fruits, mm -hmm. I always recommend them in empty stomach or the beginning of the meals. That always makes it, it's like a cheating, you know, you, the moment you have fruits in empty stomach, you immediately get a lot of sugar. So you don't have the urge to overeat. Mm. Yeah. So you won't mix fruit with heavy nuts, like uh, walnuts or something. Could, uh, especially if they have leaky gut or if they have a tendency of bloating, if they have a tendency of, uh, you know, they feel like a football is inside the stomach. If they have that history, definitely no, no, in such situations. And it's what not do you think you about? Eat. It's not what you eat, it's what you digest. So, depending on how, you know, if your digestion is fantastic, you can still eat cheese and meat together. But if you continue it for a long period, your digestion right. can get hampered and it changes. Right. I mean, these days, so many people are dairy free, at mm -hmm. least in my experience in the functional world, that it, it's not posing as big of an issue. But I think they still do mix their oh, yeah. steak with their blueberries, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, or um, something like that. So, um, yeah, I, I think that something like almond milk, what mm -hmm. do you think about almond milk and fruit? It, like, I feel like that's... It's way uh, easier to digest than cow's milk. So definitely it's, uh, it's a better option compared to cow's milk. And, and mm -hmm. also to let you know, you know, in India, we don't, we take fresh cow's milk. But when I, first time I mm -hmm. went to United States and I saw that you can store your milk for almost more than a week or even up to one month. So the shelf, yeah. life, shelf life of a milk in a tropical climate is three to six hours. And if you are storing it for more than wow. one month and uh, imagine the kind of preservatives and these preservatives can get into your membrane because these could be fat soluble and you're getting it toxic. So mm -hmm. a milk, which is having a long shelf life is the first no in my prescription. And if they have a history of taking milk. And also the, it being homogenized is a yes. big issue too. Exactly. So, um, it, you know, that's another layer of being processed that I think makes it more um, just difficult to digest, difficult to absorb. The body sees it as foreign, you know, and almost wants to attack it because it's, it's so foreign. Um, so, yeah, well, I think that's, that's good to, you know, illustrate a bit more around food combining because a lot of people are confused about it, you know. There's I mean, so many different schools of thought. I think nutrition is the most controversial topic. The same author will come up with a new edition saying my previous book was not so correct. So it is uh, controversial mm -hmm. and it's a debatable and everything could work depending on how your lifestyle is, how your digestion is, how your exercising routine is. 
and also your ancestral patterns of eating. All of this could uh, work on that. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's why Ayurveda is so attractive because mm -hmm. it doesn't change. You know, it's it's kind of been it's illustrated and, and, and passed down. It's not a fad. It's not like, oh, I'm I'm doing food combining today. No, I mean that's been a you know a thing from years, years, years ago. <laughs> and tell me about the. You said that you are about to release a book, publish a book. I'm curious to know yeah, well, what is it about and what's the name and when are you expecting to be published? I mean, looking at your experience being an MD in internal medicine and having such a passion for Ayurveda and functional medicine, it's going to be a great connection to an awakening for many people, I feel. I hope so. I mean, I really enjoyed the writing process. Mm -hmm. um, it it felt like a lot of flow when mm -hmm. I was writing it. So it really just felt, you know how some women, when they're pregnant, they just feel so good being pregnant. They know that this life is coming through them. That's how I felt writing it. And I, um, I'm really excited to share it whenever it is released. I'm in the process of looking for a publishing company right now. So it's, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's near complete, but it, um, you know, that's another step in and of itself. So, um, I have, I have, I know exactly what I, well, it's been written. So, um, it's about how I practice medicine, how I integrate, um, all of the different modalities that have influenced my practice. So, um, I really enjoy drawing parallels between functional medicine and Ayurveda in the book. Um, and I go through pretty much the different dhatus, like the seven major layers of tissue, and I highlight key conditions in each area mm -hmm. that are very common and easy to, um, easy to digest, easy to approach, and kind of what I think most people would really like to hear uh, about how to um, create more well-being in their life in these areas. So, for example, we'll you know cover rasa and rakta with skin conditions, and then I go through um, obesity and um, and and then the nervous system, anxiety and insomnia. And so I kind of go through from superficial to deep, um, the different conditions. And I, I use the functional medicine lens and Ayurvedic lens to um, share recommendations and tips and recipes and um, things that people can do just in their daily preventative life to address these common ailments. And, um, and then also weave in all the different modalities that I've um, found to be helpful um, in looking at the physical body and the deeper emotional and spiritual roots behind some of these major um, uh, major conditions, common ailments. And so it's, uh, it was just incredibly fun to write it and draw those parallels between what we find in the research in modern um, functional thought and what has been intuited and passed down through generations through Ayurveda and um, and really feel that commonality the bridge um, guide how I deliver the um, information to patients through the book so I don't have a title yet I, I mean you can look out for my name because it'll be the first book that I publish um, on health but I um, yeah, I've got a few different titles in my head, but nothing is stuck yet. So yeah, the book's written, but I don't have a title yet. Um, there is a subtitle that I have, um, which uh, I'm not sure if it's going to stay, but it's um, how disease is, um, is related to not following your dharma. So mm -hmm. I, I think I said it better somewhere else when I wrote it down, but in essence, I draw the, this, this theme evolved throughout the book where um, all of these different conditions related back to this common theme of not following your passion, not following your life purpose. And um, so that was a fun thing that emerged throughout, throughout the book. Well, that sounds like I haven't 
suggestion for your title the art of holistic healing sounds more like that <laughs> something like that i i want to keep it short i think like just a couple words would be with fun so if, yeah if anyone has any suggestions <laughs> i'm sure once i find a publisher too that they'll they'll want to have um where can we some... find more details about the work that you do is it do you have a website and yeah, so um, I, I put a lot of content out on Instagram these days. Um, so that's just my name, Nisha Khanna, MD. Mm -hmm. um, and functional then, Ayurveda, um, that's what interested me. You put the name Functional Ayurveda. Yeah, so that's, yeah, that's my website name is um, Nisha Khanna, MD. And then my practice is called Functional Ayurveda, where I uh, basically work to combine those two modalities and uh, work on that full mind body spirit healing for different patients uh, weaving in um, ayurveda functional medicine but then also going deeper with things like um, hypnosis timeline therapy even offering some ayurvedic treatments in narma so um, so yeah it's been great to create these journeys for patients where they uh, they really do work on all those layers and um, and see things turn around. And I'm sure you have similar, um, similar, you know, stories that just make you feel great to take somebody from beginning to end and see the transformation. Oh, yes. That's one great feeling, you know, which you cannot get it with some materialistic possessions or money. When you see someone changing and saying, well, this changed my life, that's one of the best feelings you can get. Yeah, yeah. I think one episode with you will not do justice to extract the wealth of information and knowledge that you have. So it looks like maybe we might have to have a sequel to this episode to get into more details about women's health. Sure, yeah, whenever. Um, and yeah, maybe after I've published the book and then I'll actually have a title for you guys. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Nisha Khanna. It was a pleasure having you in my podcast. Okay, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much. Okay, bye. Bye.